From the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery, I'm Josh Young, and this is As Seen From Here. On today's podcast, red flags for keratoprostheses. I believe that if we were able to prevent these membranes from forming, these patients would melt. First this. This year's ASCRS annual symposium was great. I learned a lot that I'm applying to my practice right now. If I have any complaint, it's that I couldn't get to all the sessions I wanted to because some of them overlapped. That's why I'm so excited about the new ASCRS Media Center. More than 1,300 sessions from that meeting are now available through this great new resource. See what you missed or revisit the most interesting sessions. The Media Center is free to all meeting attendees. Stay tuned after the podcast for more information. Keratoprostheses can bring vision to those who otherwise would not be able to see. However, these devices require tremendous commitment, both on the part of the surgeon and on the part of the patient. One serious complication of keratoprostheses is melting of the stromal bed. Although melts can be treated, vigilance is important. Soledad Cortina presents to us today an approach to detection of a risk factor for melts in keratoprostheses. Soledad, we're going to be talking about the type 1 Boston keratoprosthesis. Can I get you to describe the initial design of the keratoprosthesis and then how this design has evolved over time? The initial design of the Boston keratoprosthesis um, that was formerly known as the Dolman Doan keratoprosthesis was developed in Mass Ioneer and uh, Stevens Eye Research Institute and consisted of two uh, plated color button shaped PMMA plates that were uh, threaded uh, one to the other through the stem. And this, the initial back plate was solid. Uh, a few years later, Dr. Dolman introduced eight holes to the back plate that measured about 1.3 millimeters each. This device was initially approved in 1992 by the FDA, but really only a few surgeries were performed a year and they were mainly in Boston. And it wasn't until more, um, more data with the, uh, with the back plate with holes um, was gathered and uh, other introductions such as the titanium locking ring uh, changing from a threaded device to a non-threaded device, the introduction of a contact lens used over the uh, keratoprosthesis in the postoperative period, and also the introduction of vancomycin prophylaxis that we saw a tremendous rise in the number and the success uh, of implanted devices. How are these patients managed over the long term, and what complications most commonly are associated with this device? I always tell my patients that this, is, this device requires a uh, lifelong follow-up. I call it a height-maintenance device because I like to see them for follow-up quite often. If they're doing great, maybe every three months, every four months. We use a contact lens over uh, the keratoprosthesis to avoid desiccation of the donor graft and sometimes uh, feeding patients uh, with a contact lens can be uh, quite difficult, so we need to uh, trial and error in, in this regard, and that requires several visits. Um, this lens can also be used to correct residual refractive errors 
um, that the patients may have. And we change this, another reason for bringing them back is we need to change or replace this lens that most patients don't typically do this at home. We also pay, uh, place these patients on prophylactic antibiotic uh, treatment indefinitely. The most common complication that we observe in these patients is the formation of a retroprostatic membrane. And if it causes decreased visual acuity, we can perform a YAC laser to clear the visual access. And it happens in about 40 to 50% of all the patients implanted with, um, with keratoprosthesis. Much less common complications, um, but, the, but, but that were a lot more common with the previous design are stromal melts. Uh, today, they occur about 10 to 17 percent, um, and depending on the series published. And when they occur, of course, the keratoprosthesis then needs to be replaced. Probably the most fewer complication is postoperative endophthalmitis. Again, a lot more common with um, uh, with previous with early implantations before the introduction of vancomycin prophylaxis. And before we figure out that most of the cases were due to gram-positive bacteria, and with vancomycin prophylaxis, the incidence was significantly re reduced. Um, and then, uh, last but not least, the major cause of vision loss after, you know, after implantation. Now that we've taken, we've reduced the incidence of stromal melts, we've reduced the incidence of infections. Uh, we were left with glaucoma. So patients that don't have glaucoma may develop it after keratoprosthesis implantation and those who have it may progress. So this is, um, this is the complication that we worry about the most right now and requires very close monitoring of the intraocular pressure and the optic nerve. Do, do the patients all get, get tube shunts? Um, I think that depends on the surgeon. And my personal preference is if, if, if they have glaucoma and they don't have a shunt, 100% they will all get a shunt. But even on those patients that do not have glaucoma, I think the evidence is strong enough that I do prefer to place a shunt if possible uh, at the time of keratoprosthesis implantation. Soledad, why do stromal melts occur? So uh, any factor that could cause the cornea to melt, even in a patient that does not have a keratoprosthesis implanted, uh, you know, can play a role in these patients. So certainly undeniable that chronic surface inflammation can lead, can lead to stromal necrosis, uh, and that's why patients with autoimmune diseases such as Steven Johnson's mucous membrane basically got have a much higher incidence of stromal melt. Patients with a persistent epithelial defect, significant exposure, all of these factors can contribute to melt. But they're, they're you know, melts are multifactorial in origin. And uh, it, it was observed with early starts of the device that nutrition to the carrier corneal graft is of great importance. We know that the bulk of the glucose and other nutrients that uh, are used by the corneal cells come from the aqueous humor. And if this supply is interrupted or decreased, then stromal necrosis can occur. So this is the main reason why the introduction of these backplate holes uh, to the device had such a tremendous impact in the incidence of stromal necrosis. Dr. Doman published his series comparing the um, solid backplate to the backplate with holes in 2006, and he showed a decrease in the incidence of stromal melt from over 50% with the initial device to about 10% uh, with, the newer, with the new device. To summarize, multifactorial, but um, 
but many many things can play a role. I think nutrition is very important. So the observation that I made in my patients, I noticed that there was a significant number of patients that were developing stromal melt, but their eyes were absolutely quiet. They were cytal negative, no hypotony, and you know adequate intraocular pressure. So that led me to start imaging these patients with anterior segment uh, OCT, and I. I I was seeing that these retroprosthetic membranes actually fills the holes of the back plate, and it's essentially turning the back plate with hole into a solid back plate again, and this impairs nutrition to the donor graft and contributes to the tissue necrosis. Histopathologically, what are these membranes? These membranes are are thought to be coming from um, either the host or the donor tissue, but it's actually uh, stromal uh, keratocytes or, or, or keratocytes transforming into fibroblasts that are migrating through um, uh, ruptures or, or, or gaps in decimase membrane, and they go behind the back plate, they proliferate, uh, they adhere to the anterior iris surface, uh, there's found to be uh, lens epithelium forming part of these membranes again, iris tissue, and just fibrovascular, um, fibrovascular tissue. Soledad, can I get you to describe the design of your study? Yes. So um, my study was a retrospective observational case series and that included 50 eyes of 47 patients that were implanted with a type 1 keratoprosthesis and that had anterior segment optical coherence tomography images of this implanted device. For the purpose of this study, uh, we made the distinction between the presence of a retro-optic membrane that is visible at the slit lamp versus a retro-backplate membrane, which due to corneal opacity in many cases, uh, is, we're not visualizing it clinically. The main outcomes that we looked are um, were the presence of a retro-backplate membrane and the development of of corneal melt requiring capro explantation or replacement. For the eyes with melt, the membrane thickness was measured at the last um, OCT image obtained during the visit prior to their melt. And for the eyes without melt, the last available OCT was used. In all the eyes that had uh, anterior segment OCT evidence of a retroback plate membrane, this membrane was measured and we used the 100 degrees mid-optic cut scans to do this. And then the two groups were compared. And what were your results? What, what were your findings like that? Um, so we found that six out of the 50 eyes, or 12%, were found to have a clinical uh, melt that required keratoprosthesis explantation. The mean time from implantation to the development of, um, of melt was 16 months. We found that 100% of patients that developed corneal melt had anterior segment OCT evidence of a retrobacplate membrane before they developed this melt. All eyes uh, at the time of surgery showed gross evidence of this retroprosthetic uh, membrane at the time of explantation. In contrast, only 34% of eyes in the, in, the melt, in the group that didn't melt uh, were found to have a retroprosthetic membrane by anterior segment OCT. And the difference between these groups was significant. When we calculated the risk ratio, um, this showed that eyes with a retrobacplate membrane seen by the, uh, by the OCT are 2.9 times more likely to develop corneal melts than patients that do not have this membrane. 
Then we looked further into these and we analyzed the thickness of the membranes in the group that melt compared to the group that didn't. And we actually find that membranes in, in the group that melted were significantly thicker than the group that did not melt. Now, I can understand how a retro-optic membrane can form as an extension of a retro-backplate membrane, but you found that this was only the case in the minority of patients. How can a retro-optic membrane form in the absence of a retro-backplate membrane? And are are these patients, those ones with only retro-optic membranes, not at elevated risk for stromal melt? Correct, yes. I think that uh, uh, patients with only a retro-optic membrane are not at increased risk of melt. So it all depends what we consider the origin of the tissue that is forming this retroprosthetic membrane to be. It makes sense that if the tissue is coming from the host, um, then that it should expand from the periphery to the center. And yes, it would first cover the back plate and then cover the optic. However, it, it is also positive, uh, possible that the tissue may come through the holes, through ruptures and decimate membrane, or even around the, the stem of the optic from the donor tissue. But we also must consider that the membrane that covers the optic can be visualized very early in the process. So we can see very, very thin membranes behind the optic uh, and the slot lump. It's, it's actually not uncommon that even a week after surgery, you'll examine these patients and you'll see uh, a retro-optic membrane beginning to form. But these membranes are extremely thin uh, and opaque. So uh, the same um, the, the same membrane may not be may not be able to be detected by OCT just because of the resolution of the device. Uh, so it is very possible that these patients that we are observing a retrooptic membrane may may have a very thin retrobackplate membrane as well, just not uh, not detectable by OCT. I think that a thin membrane, and that's what our study showed as well, that a thin membrane is likely more permeable to the diffusion of uh, uh, nutritional factors to the cornea, and therefore, you know, uh, these patients are not predisposed to corneal melt as much as those patients that have a very thick membrane. You demonstrated in, in your study that a, that a large number of, of your patients um, uh, with, with, with stromal melts had retrobackplate membranes. It is, do you think that the development of a retro-backplate membrane is a necessary condition for the development of a stromal melt? So like I said before, I think the stromal melt has many contributing factors that may play a larger or smaller role depending on, uh, on an individual patient. So there are so many patients with severe surface inflammation or persistent epithelial defects that can have necrosis of the donor tissue in the absence of a retroprosthetic membrane. So I don't think it is a necessary condition for every patient. But however, for those patients that experience corneal melt in a quiet eye, I think the retroprosthetic membrane plays a very important role. I believe that if we were able to prevent these membranes from forming, um, these patients would melt. Yeah, uh, and on on that same theme, I mean, you, since you you can detect these membranes with anterior segment OCT, is, is anterior segment OCT now part of your regular regimen for following up these keratoprosthesis patients? 
It, yeah, absolutely. I use it a lot. I use it almost on every visit. I measure their membranes. I also use it to look at the angle. It's very helpful uh, to see whether the angle is closing or not and how it helps me, you know, manage their, their intraocular pressure. Um, but I, you know, I determine the thickness of the membrane, and if somebody is uh, developing a very thick membrane, then, you know, I start following them closer. It's all well and, and, and good to say for those patients that you've detected a retro backplate membrane on anterior segment OCT, but, but once you've found it, Sully Dad, what can you do about it to prevent a stromal melt? That's a great question. Uh, that's sort of like the holy grail for this problem. They still, you know, haven't really figured out what the best way to deal with these membranes is. I found that increasing the steroids, topical or oral for, um, for a few weeks may help some patients in which the inflammatory component of the membrane is more prominent. But not all patients have inflammatory membranes. In fact, I would say most don't. The only way to remove these membranes is with surgery, either by replacing the capro or uh, by a parsplanar lithectomy. Um, so I think, you know, we really need more evidence to see if we can determine a threshold above which, you know, the, the risk of melt would be so high that we would indicate surgery actually prior to the melt occurring. I don't think we've reached that point yet. Um, I believe that probably antiproliferative agents are, are in the future, and we need more research in this area. We just need to find a way to maintain these cratocytes more quiescent, and this may require device modifications, moving from PMMA to a different material. Uh, there are some trials going on with titanium backplates that are seeing a decrease in the incidence of this membrane. So uh, definitely more research needs to be done in this area uh, to answer this question more definitely. Now, having learned what you, you, you've learned from, from this study, how are you managing your patients now? Do you, do you manage them any, any differently? So with, the, you know, with what we found in this study and also uh, with what the Boston Cratoprosthesis Study Group found uh, in terms of the risk of developing retroprosthetic membrane, they found that uh, certain patients with a diagnosis of aniridia or previous coronal ulcer likely suggesting inflammation um, had a higher risk of developing retroprosthetic membranes and that surgeons, that when you used intraoperative uh, intravitreal steroids, the incidence of the membrane did not decrease, but it, uh, but it slowed down. It, it meant that they, they developed later in the postoperative period. So for some patients like anoretics, very young patients, patients that I feel have more of a stronger inflammatory response, I will do a trial of steroids and see if they'll respond. Um, other than that, I follow them closely with, uh, with OCT. If I start observing a gap around the stem, which is usually the early, earlier sign of melt, then I follow them even closer. You really want to detect these melts early and replace the capro as fast because once the melt starts to occur, the epithelium enters the eye, and it's like a cycle with the high proliferative you know, potential of the epithelium. The membrane quickly becomes a lot thicker, and the melt you know, progresses very quickly. And also, of course, you want to avoid epithelium going inside the eye and turning into clinically significant epithelial downgrowth. So at the first evidence of a stromal melt, if it's not full thickness, um, but if the patient um, 
had melts before. I found that a lot of these patients have recurrent melts. Uh, I, I'll offer them a parsplanar membranectomy. But if the melt is full thickness, then I'll just replace the K-Pro right away. Soledad, I, I have to tell you, I think that ophthalmologists who are willing to, to put in K-Pros should be lauded. Um, uh, you know, I mean, I don't, I don't do it. Uh, and, you know, the, the, the level of um, follow-up that, that you regularly need, even for the patients doing well, even for when the patients do well, uh, is uh, it's 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 commendable on on your part, and I'm glad that you uh, and that people like you are uh, doing these. I think it's it can be rewarding. Um, no, I'm sure. Uh, I'm more 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 power to you, man. Um, Solida, thank you so much. No, you're welcome. Thank you so much for inviting me to do this. Solidad Cortina is director of the Comprehensive Eye Service and Artificial Cornea Program in the Cornea and Refractive Surgery Service at the Illinois Eye and Ear Infirmary in the Department of Ophthalmology and Visual Sciences in Chicago, Illinois. Her paper, Retroprosthetic Membrane and Risk of Sterile Keratolysis in Patients with Type 1 Boston Keratoprostheses, appears in the May 2013 issue of the American Journal of Ophthalmology. Here's some additional information about the new ASCRS Media Center. Almost all of the 2012 ASCRS ASOA meeting was audio and video recorded, and there are now more than 1,300 sessions featuring almost 1,000 speakers available online. You can view the general sessions, ASCRS paper sessions, symposia, films and posters, plus select courses and ASOA sessions on business management. It's essentially the entire meeting, anytime you want, and it's all available through the new ASCRS Media Center. If you attended the meeting, your Media Center access is free. If you're a current ASCRS or ASOA member but didn't attend, you can still see everything that you missed for the member price of $199. If you're not an ASCRS member, you can still purchase the Media Center, or better yet, Join us and get the lower member price. To view the 2012 meeting through the Media Center, visit the ASCRS website at www.ascrs.org. If you're already a member, log in first and then click the Media Center link. If you're a guest, just click the Media Center link at the top of the page. From there, you can purchase the Chicago 2012 package or, better yet, Join the ASCRS and receive the discounted member price. Ask questions of Dr. Cortina or any of our previous guests, or make a comment about any of the topics we've discussed. These interviews are meant to be the start of a conversation in which you participate. Write to me with your questions or comments at jyoungmd at gmail.com. As seen from here is a production of the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery. Be a part of the next podcast. I'm Josh Young.